behavior, bitches. Hey guys, it's Liat and Casey, and we're back with episode 33. The rhyme for today is 3-3. I think that's the amount of time today that I went to go pee. I've been drinking a lot of water, trying to keep up with these self-management habits over here. So that's what happens when I rhyme. All right. So you guys know where you could find us. You could find us on Facebook, Behavior Bitches Podcast. You could find us online at behaviorbitches.com, Instagram, Behavior Bitches Podcast, and you could always support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Behavior Bitches Podcast. There you go. That's everything. You know where to find us. For today, we needed to start off with a little bit of positive reinforcement. So we are going to read our review of the day. Casey. Dun, dun, dun. This is an Apple review. It is from Lauren Allison 88. The title is Yes, exclamation point. Yes, exclamation point. Yes, exclamation point. I had to read that because of a review. She said, though the title of this review sounds a little overly excited, it is exactly how I feel. I have been working in the ABA field for a hot minute now, and I'm a newly minted BCBA, BCABA waiting to take the BCBA exam. I was one more overly chipper cheerleader colleague away from quitting the field with middle fingers up. I love how real you <laughs> ladies are, and now I no longer feel like the odd ball out. That you is are awesome. not alone, and I love that almost Saying. standing there alone with the middle fingers up. Love that. <laughs> way to be real and way to be raw. So that was our review. Um, I think what we should also tell everyone is that we're also together in Dallas. Oh, we are. We are sitting next to each other today doing this. Usually Casey's in her cave in New Hampshire, and I'm here in Dallas, but Casey is in the study knows ABA cave with flamingos on the wall. She is here experiencing it all. We are so excited. We have been doing so much work together. Literally, I think we like to pretend like we're celebrities. We have so much stuff to do one thing after another, but nothing gets done. It's just so amazing. Huge whiteboard with a huge to-do list. We wake up, um, we start work at eight and we don't go to bed till probably midnight, but it's beautiful and it's a good problem to have. So your, your bitches still love each other. It actually only grew our bond closer when I came back the second time. I agree. Absolutely. So let's see. We're episode 33. That is insane to me. That's another rhyme. And let's <laughs> talk a little bit about how excited we are for our guest today. Okay. Guys, we are getting much cooler with our guests. Again, I know we always bring it up, but we started off having our own siblings on. I had my sister on talking about marketing. Casey had her sister on talking about addiction. Had my dad coming on about finances. We are just getting cooler and cooler as the time goes on. And today we have someone really, really, really cool. Actually, thanks to my little sis. And by little, I mean she's my older sis, but she's like five foot flat. Making this introduction to our guest for today, our guest for today is the author of a book titled Awkward, The Science of Why We're Socially Awkward and Why That's Awesome. And he wrote another book titled The Science of Happily Ever After. Has, his work has been featured at the New York Times, Time.com, TheAtlantic.com, and NPR. I'm sure you guys have heard of those things. No offense, that's a big freaking deal. He received his PhD in psychology from the University of Minnesota, has been an award-winning professor at the University of Maryland. Woo, go Terps, that's me, woo, woo. All right, and the University of Colorado and has addressed at TEDxNYC, Harvard Business School, 
MIT's Media Lab, and the American Psychological Association. He lives in New York City. Guys, introducing Ty Tashiro. We are so honored to have you on the show today. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's great to talk some uh, psychology and talk some behaviorism. Woo! Let's talk. Love those two things. All right, so before we get started today, I mean, I don't know exactly where the conversation will go, but I know based on our little conversation we had before the show, some of the behavior principles that I think we will be touching on, um, and I'm pretty safe to say these principles, I think, almost on every show because there's always reinforcement and punishment in life. Um, So you'll see reinforcement, punishment, matching law, delayed consequences, novel behaviors, deprivation versus satiation, and many more because when we talked to Ty, he was throwing them out there like crazy. So he knows some behavioral language and we like it a lot. So Ty, thank you so much for coming on. Seriously, I'm so thankful. No, I'm glad your sister uh, got us together and we can make this happen. I know. She's a well-connected chick. She like is always sending me stuff. So I'm, I'm appreciative of her. So Thanks, Talia. Thanks, Talia. This one's for you. All right. So tell us a little bit more about yourself because I'm sure we missed a bunch about you. Like what makes you Ty? How'd you get into what you do? These are huge loaded questions, but sure. let's see. Yeah. Well, I wish I had a more uh, planful linear story to tell you, but, um, gosh, I think, uh, I got in psychology, um, just cause I didn't have to take chemistry as a undergraduate the other majors I was considering, um, I'd have to take that in calculus. And so I did psychology. Uh, it turned out to be a great thing for me to do, uh, because then I ended up pursuing it, uh, for my graduate work. And when I was at Minnesota, um, I kind of found out I liked research, a lot more than I thought I would. Um, I had more of a knack for it than I expected. And so that was a pretty pretty nice surprise. And I was lucky too, because Minnesota was a great place to study uh, romantic relationships, uh, the kind of partners we choose, uh, how the those relationships go over the course of years or decades. And then also what happens when people break up and then of course try to repartner with somebody new. And uh, so I think that's how I got into this business of studying romantic love, and then ended up wanting to write some some books about it eventually. I met Talia, your sister, at the University of Maryland, where I was teaching an undergraduate course on the science of romantic relationships. And um, the poor girl was in my class, <laughs> had to endure a semester with me. Um, but that was actually a really great class. And one of the reasons I loved it was that, gosh, there were, I think about 200 students and we would spend half the time in conversation and them asking questions about how they could apply uh, some of the research to their to their own lives. And so they tell these thinly veiled stories about a friend they have uh, who's struggling. <laughs> with, not them. Let's say asking a certain guy out. Yeah, right, of course not. And um, And then I'd have to come up with a way to try to translate that to their real world situation. And uh, I kind of realized that, wow, there's all this great psychological science about romantic relationships and not nearly, uh, hardly any of it actually was getting transported to the people who really need it. Uh, the people who are trying to find a partner or trying to resolve some kind of conflict in their relationship. Wow, so an applied science similar to what we do, very cool. 
um, applying it to real life. And that's what us over here, these behavior bitches sitting right here across the Google Hangout screen from you <laughs> like to do. Um, amazing. So just out of interest, and it's okay if you're not, but I mean, I know you obviously understand behaviorism because you were talking it, you were talking the talk, the behavior talk to us on the phone, but are you, are you familiar at all with ABA, Applied Behavior Analysis? I mean, just, just a bit, uh, you know, I'm kind of a cognitive behavioral guy when I've seen clients, I no longer see clients now, but I always love the approach. Um, I love the behavioral activation approach, uh, but I, I think you, you all have a much more nuanced understanding of, of the principles uh, than I do and, and of the terminology. But uh, broadly, I've just always, I've liked the philosophical idea that uh, if you change behavior, you know, emotion and cognition sometimes follow a good path. Uh, I, I think sometimes when you enter, of course, there's nothing wrong with entering with emotion or cognition, but uh, sometimes people can get, me included, can get twisted around a little bit and it can be a bit confusing. I, I like the straightforwardness of the behavioral approach. Yeah, you see what you see and you observe what you observe and you don't really take into those, uh, the account, those like mentalistic feelings, especially when you're trying to, you know, change the behavior, especially with kids with autism. It's like, we just got to see what we see and uh, go from there. But I, um, so we, I know today we're going to talk about your book, The Science of Happily Ever After, right? We decided we were going back and forth between the awkward one uh, and the science of happily ever after. And our very, very first episode here at Behavior Bitches podcast was on dating. So at episode 33, I was like, why not bring on a professional versus just us talking mm -hmm. about relationships? As I said, we've gotten, we've gotten more legit as the episodes go on. Yeah. Um, so I know that we have some questions for you, kind of like, just some questions, broad ones that we can bring up to sign the spur of the conversation. Um, so do you want to tell us how you, you know, what we can start with maybe just uh, how long it took you to write the book? Was it hard? Was it exciting? Like what were your feelings and thoughts going into that? <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it was hard. I, I can <laughs> start with that. Um, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the challenge, certainly, but um, I kind of had this naive idea that I could just take what I said uh, verbally in, uh, in the course I taught on, on the subject and, and just put that into words on a page. And of course, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> you, you figure out, well, they can't see you. You don't have the intonation of your voice. You lose all of these things that we use to communicate in person, of course, in the, in the written word. And uh, so, yeah, I, I kind of did what I call my independent study, uh, MFA in creative writing, and uh, tried to figure out how to tell stories in a way that was compelling and interesting, um, and also explain data and theory in a way that was really user-friendly and accessible. Data. So one of the things data. I love about... We love data. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I love it too, you know, and it can get, it can get a little confusing sometimes. Um, but I, I enjoy that process of, of saying, how do we take these complex analyses and uh, deliver it to folks who are bright and eager, but in a way that's not as, as painful <laughs> as the way it was maybe in the journal or um, in the study itself. 
so, so yeah, I watched uh, your it, um, it was a it was a great learning process. I watched your TEDx talk and I saw your you did have data up there, like a nice graph, right? With like the lines going down of like what happens over oh, yeah. a 13-year relationship or something. Was it 13 years or something? I think I heard you say. <laughs> and the second you posted those, I'm like, oh, my yeah. interest is so much more peaked. I need to see this. There's a graph. There's a graph. I love that. I, I'm the same way. I've always just kind of enjoyed that systematic uh, approach. We also so it's teach a kindred spirit when someone sees a graph and they get excited. Well, we also teach study classes. So, and we're always saying, like, ooh, what kind of graph is that? Is that a single subject design or is that, you know, across subjects? Um, is and it a I line think, graph, a bar graph, a cumulative record. <laughs> right. And I think that actually, <laughs> the graphs that you were doing were not within subject design, right? You're using across multiple people. Uh, yeah. So a lot of the studies uh, I've looked at are between subjects. Um, so looking at different couples and how they compare and contrast with each other. Uh, but some of the studies were, uh, there's a few gems out there that were longitudinal. So within subjects, and they followed people over the course of 10 or 20 years uh, to see what happened over the course of their um, relationship or relationships. And those are really great because they tell you a lot about um, the uneven trajectory of relationships over the course of time. That's really cool. I have a question for you. This is going in, we're going to dive into your book a little bit, okay? And have you okay. explain it and then sure. we'll try to reel out some of those behavioral principles. Um, why do singles only get three wishes for the characteristics of their ideal mate? Can you elaborate on that? <laughs> and who gives the three wishes? A genie or something? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of, well, that's the way I like to imagine it. So, um, you know, I would do this activity in class where I'd ask the students to write down all the things they want in their ideal romantic partner. And uh, they would just write furiously for, <laughs> you know, three or four minutes trying to get as many uh, on the paper as possible. They certainly had no lack of ideas. And we added it up a few times. And I think the average was about 17 characteristics. So Maybe wow. they want someone tall, dark, and handsome, or, you know, in a rock and roll band, or I don't know. There could be all kinds of things someone might want. And then we would do an activity where we'd pick some of those characteristics. So let's say someone wanted a male partner, and one of their characteristics was tall. So let's say that uh, tall for them is six foot or taller. Well, imagine they had a hundred randomly selected bachelors uh, just standing in the room. Mm -hmm. About 80 of those bachelors would need to leave based on the height criteria because only 20% of men in the US are six foot or taller. Now, let's take a second characteristic. Let's say they want someone who matches their political um, ideas or their political orientation. Well, they'd lose about 66% uh, more people at that point. So now they're down to four or five people and then whatever other wish they make with that third wish, whatever characteristic it is, uh, oftentimes it took us down to one person or a fraction of a person. So yeah. you can see across just three, wishing for three different characteristics, you just naturally rule out people, but we don't always think about this when we're um, setting our preferences. And one way that happens very concretely now is in online dating. Um, people set criteria for who they 
get to see. So they're, they're ruling out thousands and thousands of people based on criteria that might not matter that much to them in the long run. Talk about setting criteria on Casey. Seriously. You're setting up that criteria and how many trials to criteria on like we talk about how many duds do you have to go out with until you find the one <laughs> literally <laughs> <laughs> trying to think mine, mine might've been a lot, but yeah, it's interesting you say that because when I think of the character traits that I wanted a husband to have or a future partner, it's not what I ended up with, huh, but I actually think it might be, I, but I actually think it might be a blessing because, uh, or I guess maybe what I wanted at different stages of life are different, kind of that changing motivating operation, what was valuable to me at different times of life. Yeah. So what you thought you wanted turned out to not be what the magic combination was. Is that, is that right? Yeah. It, it is a pleasant surprise, you know, when it, when it works out well and, and you're almost a little bit panicked is what I, I'll hear from folks a lot of times. They say, I might've missed out on some of these traits in this partner I have who's wonderful just because I would have overlooked them in favor of some other things that actually in hindsight wouldn't have mattered that much to me. So now when you say uh, the only three wishes, is this instead of just being like list your, you know, when you said your students list what you, the characteristics of your ideal mate, and they may have listed 20, you know, 17, 27, right? So just if you only have three, right, it's a limited quantity of what you can list. So you really think about it more. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? So what I would tell them, because this is a little demoralizing <laughs> getting this news. Um, and sometimes they get fired up. I'd say, hey, I'm just the messenger here. So um, it's just math. But uh, I'd say, hey, keep your whole list. But instead of just having it haphazard, let's prioritize it. At least the top 10 things, right? Have that really well thought out and prioritized so that you make sure you're getting the things that are most important to you. Now, the good news is, is you'll get more than three good things in a partner, uh, unless you pick, <laughs> just have really bad luck and get a really bad one. <laughs> Rotten um, egg. That, right. But uh, if things go well, right, there'll be a lot of great traits and characteristics in a partner. Um, and some of those things will be surprises, like we talked about earlier, uh, which is great. But you want to be sure that at least for the top three or you know, four or five things, you're absolutely positive that you're prioritizing those and that you're getting those in a partner. For the right reasons, right? That's yeah. And right. I mean, as you're saying mathematically, it's true. Every time you add in another criteria on something else that needs to, you're just like, even when you go into Java and look up articles, right? You're like typing in a certain thing and then you're like, actually, I only want journals. Okay. Actually, I only want it after be, 1993. Yeah, after 1993. <laughs> Actually, I only want it written by two authors as opposed to 30. And then you get down and you're like, hey, I'm not even getting the information I want. No criteria search results. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, that's, that's, well, that's a great example of what happens with uh, partner selection uh, sometimes. And, uh, you know, it can be overwhelming, of course, if you have uh, 80,000 hits. Well, you can't, you know, read all those articles. Uh, but you do want to be selective about what are these filters I want to use to get down to what I really need. So why do you think people prioritize looks and money when choosing a long-term partner? Is there any science behind this or is it just like what's appealing at the moment? Yeah, there, there's actually a, a great deal of science behind it. And um, 
you know, because one of the things that was surprising to me was that uh, for both men and women, um, across different sexual orientations, looks and money <laughs> fall into the top uh, three wishes for, you know, most, most people. Now, they won't say that that's what they want, but when you watch what they actually do in uh, speed dating scenarios or online scenarios, uh, they are choosing on looks and socioeconomic status. Now, the, the reason we choose on looks, the evolutionary uh, theory behind this is that physical, outward physical appearance and your physical attractiveness can be an indicator of your genetic health. So, phylogeny, oh my gosh, yeah, this is yeah. like Darwin selectionism, trying to, like it goes all the way back to like the biological component. I like this. Okay, keep going. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, you know, when life expectancy was under 40 years old and environments were really stressful in the sense that it was very easy to starve or, you know, get killed by some kind of beast out there in the wilderness or something. Sasquatch, uh, definitely Sasquatch. Sasquatch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you had to uh, be very selective about partners. And so um, you want a partner who had robust physical health, one, because they have a better chance of surviving, two, because they'll pass along those good, healthy genes to your, to your kids. And so something like facial symmetry, uh, so like your ears are in the same place on both sides, <laughs> uh, they're about the same size. Um, you know, facial symmetry was thought to be this outward indicator of genetic health. And, and there is some evidence in societies where life expectancy is low, um, that, the, that your physical attractiveness is associated with certain health markers. So we've, it's kind of like wisdom teeth, you know, we had this uh, thing that was evolved right. to be of service in certain, in, in certain contexts for a long time, but now in modern life, like it doesn't really do us any good and it actually kind of hurts sometimes. So yeah. um, this, this notion that we want to pick someone physically attractive, it's such a primal kind of feeling and, and preference, but the return on investment from physical attractiveness is zero. So yeah. if you uh, have an attractive female partner, um, there's no impact on long-term satisfaction or stability. And if you're a heterosexual woman who has an attractive male partner, it's not associated with long-term satisfaction. It's actually, actually negatively associated with your stability. So, so it's actually a higher chance of breakup. And that's because the attractive guy is not only attractive to you, uh, oh. but also to other people uh, uh, too. Mm -hmm. And in our society, infidelity is, you know, sometimes or oftentimes one of those uh, one deal things that can, uh, that can be the end of things. That could punish a behavior. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's a pretty decisive uh, punishment a, a lot of times. In, yeah. In very culture. final. Yep. I, yeah. I, I had this one funny thing on Instagram that I posted after I met my husband and I mean, I have to say he is pretty good looking too, but he's a really good cook, like really good. He's from Israel and wow, everything he makes. But this Instagram thing said, marry someone who knows how to cook. Looks go away, but hunger doesn't. <laughs> and I love that. That is true. Well, okay. <laughs> and hunger is that unconditioned motivating operation. Right. Unconditioned that, that I exactly. <laughs> so, it's given. Yep. Yeah, I, I love what you're saying because you know, and, and in, in um, your TED talk, you had spoken about how a lot of people view love 
even in like from childhood, whether we watch movies or into adulthood, about how love is this thing we hear, you just fall in love out of nowhere. You'll just know it's fate. We're it's meant fate. to be. It's romantic. It's 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 just fate. It's when when it comes, it comes, right? And like, which as behaviorist, that is just highly mentalistic in terms of and and you were saying we believe that even into our adulthood but there actually is science behind this to show that there is some form of determinism as to how we find our right partner as to you know what characteristics we're going after or um what uh type of relationships we're getting involved in so is that something that you could speak more about Sure. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, the first stories we hear as children in, in fairy tales do have that magical beginnings uh, kind of narrative. And then it always ends, of course, at happily ever after, which is bullshit right when they're getting married. Right. And it's like, well, no, there's actually an appendix that's about 40 or 50 years long uh, here. That's pretty interesting, too. So um, there is this kind of notion that things happen magically, that they happen by fate. Um, and this carries on into adulthood. So for example, uh, Gallup had this interesting question in one of their polls and they asked a US sample if they believed in soulmates. So this kind of magical notion that you, there's someone out there for you and you'll magically find each other and then live happily ever after. And 88% of people said yes, that they, that they believe in that notion. Um, now, whether- That's a lot of that, people. That's a, that's a lot of people. And what you see once they get in a relationship is that uh, this belief in soulmates is then associated with magical thinking in the relationship. So one example of that is uh, mind reading. Uh, you might have <laughs> seen this. Yeah. Or someone will say, you should know uh, what I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you don't know what's wrong. If we're soulmates, you should you. know without me telling you. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly right. I've and, never done uh, that, though. Never. I've never done that. <laughs> <laughs> I think all of us have uh, had our moments, probably. But yeah. um, <laughs> of course, not 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 a helpful uh, kind of thing. But it, it's mm -hmm. linked to that notion that, that there's some kind of magical force that should make romantic relationships work. And of course, as we all know, no, it's it's a it's behaviors and it's thinking hard about things and putting a lot of effort. Uh, over the course of uh, decades that makes a relationship good. It's, it's not fate. It's the work you put into it. It's a, all relationships, whether they're friendships or family relationships or the love interest, it all takes work, right? And compromise. But let me tell you one thing that I've learned about relationships along the way. From being in shitty relationship in the past, mm -hmm. you know, and I think it's a common mistake I see a lot of people make. And it's this idea that, relationship should take work, right? I remember being with a boy, we just sucked together for five years. <laughs> we sucked. We were literally just toxic. I mean, I think if I said this is white, he would say this is black and this and this, right? I mean, we just fight about everything. And we would, it was just so, it was like a toxic drug we would go back to, like to each other. And it was like, well, we fight because we love each other so much. And mm. I, I don't necessarily think that is true. Now that I've, dated other people since and no I don't mean work in the sense of like we have to put it in. it's just like everything you mean your behaviors right like I'm away from my husband so because I love him and care about him I pick up the phone and call him three like a couple times a day to show to him you know how much I love him even though I'm busy busy working 
it's still, you know, that behavior you have to engage in because you love that person. Right. But actually, is that something you, what I'm saying, I, I hear what you're saying totally. But what I'm saying, since you are looking at relationships and things, do you see that as a common misconception that people think, oh, this is normal that I'm in this um, crazy toxic relationship because this is what love is? Yeah, uh, you, you do see some of that. And, and you're both right, right? Like there's a mindfulness component to this where you need to uh, put effort into doing good things like calling each other or, or doing nice things, uh, being patient, <laughs> some of these yeah. sorts of positive behaviors. Um, but there are also situations where people seem oddly drawn <laughs> to some relationships that might be hard or conflictual. And some of the interesting developmental psychology research on this suggests that um, people intentionally sometimes choose interpersonal problems <laughs> because they, they're not sure that they know how to solve it. And so this desire we have for completion or to have mastery over things uh, can backfire on us sometimes in romantic relationships because we want to solve this person or we want to figure them out or make this thing work. And of course, what you eventually realize is, well, this is never going to get worked out or this person's never going to change. Uh, but it, it's certainly an easy thing to do. And it's certainly one of those things where I think the the reinforcement can be intermittent, right? And oh, so, God, yes. The, yeah, which is so terrible <laughs> because the that personal- That maintains behavior the strongest. If you want, it's, that's the hardest to break if it's intermittent reinforcement because- I, it's it's so so strong exactly and and it's uh it's gambling right it's just um variable yep. hey, ratio going to be in this relationship and sometimes this person is going to be wonderful and magical and great uh a lot of the other time maybe it's not so good but those moments when things are really great between the two of you or the the partner's really wonderful is enough to keep one hooked in Wow. Okay. So my dad always says, be careful. Well, now I'm married, so I guess he doesn't say it to me anymore, but be careful who you marry because when you marry someone, you marry the parents. Is this true? Yeah, kind of. I, I mean, uh, for better or for worse, uh, you know, one of the chapters that um, we had in the, the book was about parents, actually. And uh, it doesn't matter the kind of relationship that a partner has with their parents. And, and this shows up in a few ways. I mean, one really obvious way is that if you marry somebody, it, you'll probably just have these people in your life, <laughs> the, the parents. Yeah. And that can be a positive thing if they're supportive or certainly a negative thing if, if they're not. Um, but beyond that, you know, the the parents and the child establish an attachment style or an attachment relationship. And as you know, that can be a secure attachment or it could be uh, an insecure attachment, either anxious or avoidant. And those relational patterns they learn if they're avoidant or anxious are strongly predictive of their chances of being successful in a long-term romantic relationship. So they have this great study at Minnesota in the development and child development there where they got kids when they were in their third trimester, still in their mom's tummies. Oh, wow. And they followed these kids now for about 30 years. And they're able to predict 
from these tapes of kids interacting with their parents at age two, how their marital relationships will be as far as conflict and satisfaction and stability decades later. Wow. That's insane. So amazing. So with that, do you think that people, I mean, I'm just looking at, you know, people's learning histories with behavior or um, sometimes you hear that people marry someone just like their dad or just like their mom, or they might settle for a crappier relationship because they saw abuse in their household as a child. Do you think that that learning history also affects one when choosing a partner? Yeah, it, it certainly um, it certainly seems to. So it's, it's not inevitable, I should say, about all these things, right? There's always a good number of outliers who, um, let's say maybe they came from a, a tough upbringing um, through, I, I guess, just sheer determination and open-mindedness and learning, um, end up having great romantic relationships in, uh, in adulthood. So Casey's dancing uh, here. Casey grew up in a very interesting household and she's relatively normal. So she's just dancing over here. Like that's me. That's when you were me. saying yeah. from some form of de determinism or whatever it is, like de being determined. And I went through my, you know, crappy relationships, but I, um, I have found like the best guy. He's just so wonderful and kind and caring and normal. If normal can be a thing, but like, um, we're married now. And I always was like, oh my God, I can never marry anyone like my parents. Like I would don't ever want that. And yeah, not that yeah. I love them to death, but <laughs> right, God, right. no. And um, so, yeah, I was doing a happy dance over here. Like he's talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's, I mean, that, that's awesome. Right. And, yeah. um, but you, you had this moment, it sounds like where you said, hey, I, I don't want that same thing. Right. And I'm going to have to maybe relearn some ways mm -hmm. of interacting or some ways of relating. Yeah. Uh, imagine even sometimes, right? Some yeah. different ways that somebody could be or how you can relate to them in order to end up with a, a different situation. Uh, but for, you know, a lot of people, um, that's, that's not the case necessarily. And uh, they saw certain behaviors and interactions modeled for them repeatedly and from an early age. And so they're, yeah, prone to getting themselves into similar, similar situations and sometimes not consciously, right? Uh, I always love this um, line that um, dispositions are evocative. So it's not just that uh, our characteristics and our traits are passive. So, you know, we're just reacting to the world based on these things. We'll create situations so that we can act in those ways. So let's say someone's extroverted, they will uh, text and call like crazy on uh, Thursday so that they have tons of things to do with tons of people on the weekend. And that's great. And they'll talk to a lot of people and they'll look really extroverted, but they actually created those situations. The same thing can happen in relationships where uh, if someone is used to a household of conflict, then they might actually subconsciously create those kind of situations and then find themselves in, uh, you know, relationships that are punishing or, or not that rewarding, um, which can be confusing. But in fact, that's what they're used to. I've seen that a lot with some... Uh... Uh, people I know of why does this all this crazy stuff always happen to me like I don't I'm such a good person I don't I don't do this to myself and yeah. it's like looking at from an outsider you can see that they've 
really evoked a lot of these behaviors on their own. And it's really hard to tell someone um, when they're like, I don't understand why there's so much drama in my life. I'm like, well, there's a clear reason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> clear yeah. Um, behavior pattern here of what you've done. The world yeah. is a lawful and orderly place, guys. That's that's a determinism factor. There could be a common denominator. Yeah, yeah, ab absolutely. And I mean, it's it's easy to overlook, you know, because I think all of us can think of situations where uh, we've repeatedly <laughs> put ourselves into stressful situations. And it was only when some friend who had just the right way to explain it was able to say, hey, this is a pattern. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's stuff that you do that sets it up before you ever get into that situation. Um, Antecedents. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But it's so easy, I think, to overlook those, those antecedents. So while we're still on the topic of, um, you know, how we may find our mate or whatever it may be and could be horrible or amazing, um, we know that there's like a very high divorce rate and that I feel like it happens left and right. People I know get married and in a year they're divorced. What should people be looking for if they want to find a long, like successful, happy relationship? Yeah. Give us yeah, the well, answer, Ty. Come on. <laughs> well, I can, uh, I can give you some bad news first. So uh, <laughs> the, just to go into the di divorce rate a little bit. Yeah. So the They're not in rate, our favor. We know the stats are yeah. not in our favor. <laughs> it's a little tough. So um, the divorce rate for first marriages is about uh, 41%. Um, the uh, the overall divorce rate is about 50%. That's because in second marriages and third marriages, the risk of divorce goes up, actually. Um, there's about Why is that? Why is that? Because the same thing happens with our BCBA exam. They say the passing rate gets lower and lower as oh, really? you take it again. <laughs> what is it? Well, I can't speak to your exam, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm not sure what happens with the um, lower success rate in successive marriages. But uh, it does seem to be the case that, you know, the, the, the alternative hypothesis is that people would have learned something from the first marriage and then it's not going to, you know, happen the second time. But it, it just seems to be the case that uh, the, the, the risk goes up. Uh, it, there's also a interesting a finding where uh, these sociologists at Harvard realized that you know, a lot of people don't report their divorce. So they'll be, for all intents and purposes, divorced. So they'll never see the person again. They're financially independent. They can't stay on the person, you know. Uh, they found out about 10 to 15% of marriages end this way. So you can tack on an additional, let's be conservative, 10% to the uh, to the breakup or, or divorce rate. And then about 6 to 7% of couples will be chronically unhappy across multiple years. So your, your chances- We're at like what, finding... almost 70 here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, well yeah. this sucks. <laughs> right, so they're bad odds is the- is So what do we get married for? Health insurance? Well, that's one good reason, I, <laughs> I <laughs> guess. That's what I but, did, uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you, you know, I think um, the, when it does work out, boy, it sure is, is great, right? Yeah, and uh, it's, it, it's important to remember that, so let's say, let's say 40% of the time it, it, it can work out. I think it's worthwhile to, yeah. to, to give that a go. And the great thing is, is if people are mindful and knowledgeable about how they choose a partner in the first place, uh, then that dramatically improves the odds that they'll have a stable 
and happy relationship for decades to come. So, you know, one of the first things you can do is realize the premium that we put on physical attractiveness and on socioeconomic status. And to also remember that the return on investment for those two traits is zero or very low. So when it comes to wealth, you know, the, it, it matters up a little bit past the poverty line. So if you choose a partner who will get you past the poverty line, um, then it really doesn't matter from that point on. So I like to say there's no difference between a partner who makes $75,000 and a partner who makes $750,000 when it comes to predicting your relationship, stability, and, and happiness. You might have some cool, nice, pretty things, you know, right, but there's uh, no actual the, the yeah. differences. Right. But so, there is um, a difference between making 20000 a year and making 75000 a year. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, the, with the income, it's a satisfying kind of criteria. Uh, with the physical attractiveness, you don't want to have it be the case that uh, kissing your partner feels like eating your veggies necessarily. <laughs> uh, so you want some degree of attraction. You don't want it to be uh, aversive. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but you don't have to maximize on that either, which is what a lot of people do. So if you take those two out, those two kind of wasted um, wishes out, and you choose for things that actually matter, well, now you're in a really good position. So one of the ways you can do that is with personality. And so if your listeners will just think to themselves for a second, what would be the three personality traits they would want that would best predict long-term satisfaction and stability? And go ahead and just get those set in their head. I'm doing my thinking. Know, even though I have, yeah. like, I'm thinking of all the traits and they actually all match my husband, which is wonderful. Funny, that, that easygoing, and caring. What do you got for Ellie, Ron? I need... Funny, this is not for Eliron. This is what I need. <laughs> um, uh, funny, I need someone driven, which also goes with passionate. I know that's saying like th that's three, but that's actually two. And someone who is compassionate. I need those three things. And well, actually, I thought I needed someone who didn't smoke cigarettes, but I found someone who does. But hey, look, <laughs> you win some, you lose some. And we're working on behavioral reduction programs. There you go. Well, hey, I'll, I'll take someone compassionate who smokes over someone <laughs> who's uncompassionate yeah. and, and doesn't smoke. So, exactly. um, uh, well, so they've done a lot of studies about this. And one of the things they'll do is they'll give people personality measures when they're single. And then they'll track them and find out what happens when they get married. And interestingly enough, you can use these personality traits before they ever meet their partner to predict pretty well whether they'll be happy and stable in their relationship years later. So the personality trait you want to rank number one is to get a partner who's emotionally stable. Uh, another way to put that is, is to get a partner who is not neurotic. <laughs> so, yeah, there you go. Uh, Neuroticism is strongly predictive of long-term dissatisfaction and also, also strongly predictive of um, divorce or breakups. And that sounds like common sense uh, when you think about it in hindsight. But when you watch what people do in online dating or, or actual real life, 
emotional stability falls to about eighth or ninth in the ranking. So it you're be so right. One. That it should yeah. be my number one. I completely agree. And actually, you're right. My husband is totally emotionally stable. It's nice. It's something to be extremely grateful for. Yeah, <laughs> because... serious. No, you're totally right. And I like when you said that, I'm like, hell yeah, that should be number one. The last thing I need is to be trying to fix pieces every day. Yeah, yeah. You know, because when you break down neuroticism into its parts, Arts, you know, someone who's moody and prone to anger, uh, pessimistic, it's just not a lot of fun uh, to start with. And it can also create a, a lot of problems. Um, so, so there's an easy wish. And if you wish for someone who is emotionally stable, you wish for someone who's high in agreeableness or like a nice, kind person, um, then those two traits alone, replacing um, the looks and the money, already have dramatically improved your odds of having a happy and a stable relationship. But once again, this is one of these things where uh, getting someone who's kind and getting someone who's emotionally stable fall too far down the list. And so people don't always get those traits in a partner. And it's also in my, I'm just thinking this, like when you first, it's easier to first judge someone by those looks and money, right? Those are like, you could say, yes, you're attractive. Yes, I, um, I can see your bank well, statement. Well, like, a, not even bank statement. It's like, immediately like i have to admit it's like oh my god yeah you should totally date him he's a doctor you know like or at least in the jewish world it's like ah, oh, he's a doctor you must get with him <laughs> and it's like oh he's a doctor but he's like like a serial killer you know like okay <laughs> i think that like finding those um like you know it, it takes a little while to learn if someone is sta emotionally stable right maybe yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or caring um, or funny. Well, like those are things you kind of have to get to learn from someone or a little bit, right? Yeah, they, they take a little more time. Uh, whereas you're absolutely right. Uh, things like someone's attractiveness, obviously, uh, or their wealth can be just really easily discernible. Um, and so it, it, it does take some patience. And it's even harder if you're in a romantic relationship, because if you like them, uh, or even if you just lust for them, uh, it clouds your judgment. And so you can't really see clearly they have this halo effect. So one of the things you can do, as painful as this is, is you can ask your friends and family mm. <laughs> well, yeah. uh, to weigh in uh, on the matter. And they don't have the same uh, biases that the person in the relationship has. And so one of the maddening things, I think, about uh, some of these social psychology studies is that your friends and family better predict your relationship outcome than you do. And it's because they see with less bias the negatives and the positives uh, in the partner. That's amazing because when there's love, there's absolutely no logic. That's my thing. I think when there's love, logic goes out the freaking window. You're absolutely right about that. And they have some great fMRI studies where they <laughs> essentially watch people's brains on love and the reasoning centers and the inhibition and the forethought centers of the forebrain are pretty much shut down, if not deactivated, so harder to activate. Um, but the emotion areas and the appetitive behavior areas are of course on fire. That's so interesting because, you know, when we talk about behavior in general, we talk about, you know, a behavior and a con or antecedent behavior and a consequence. If you 
stick your finger in a plug and you get electrocuted, it probably will punish that behavior. I mean, only if you don't do it again in the future, but likely it will punish that behavior of not doing it again, right? Or you right. put chemical A with chemical B, you see that it causes an explosion and your house blows up. You're probably not going to do that again. But for some reason, and, and, and that's logical, right? Not to do it again once you figure that out. But for some reason, when it's love, it's like, hmm, this relationship is so toxic. And I know that when I put A and B together, me plus him together, it's terrible. But for some reason, it's like that that contingency that typically teaches, you know, or um, affects whether we do a behavior or engage in something again or not is out the window when it comes to love. It's absolutely crazy. Yeah, it, it is strange, right? Because you wouldn't apply the same principles to other parts of your life, like putting your finger in a socket, for example. Um, but you yeah, can't. I, yeah, I think one of the things with relationships that's so tricky is just how multidimensional, of course, they are, right? And so there's this, boy, this just whole basket of <laughs> rewards and punishments uh, all lying together uh, in there. And it can be hard to sort out uh, what is what uh, if there's more rewards than than punishments how to weight those different kinds of things and one of the interesting things they find with adolescents in romantic relationships is that they don't make cost benefit analyses Ooh, of whether to stay that, in yeah. it yeah they just make benefit analyses <laughs> and so uh, they also find that some adults seem to maintain that strategy. So they don't really weigh the costs as much as they should. And they're more just driven by the benefits, uh, somehow overlooking uh, the costs that are incurred in a relationship. The benefits must just be that much more reinforcing than those costs, right? Yeah. Or at yeah. the immediacy of those benefits, right? They're not looking at the long-term consequences because like the immediacy right. of that, oh, this feels so good in this moment right? It outweighs that like, <laughs> you're going to be effed later down the line, my friend, you know? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, it's ecstatic, right? I mean, the the rewards in a romantic relationship, where else do you there's get nothing those kinds more of rewards and those Yeah, there's nothing more reinforcing than, and I think we actually said this on episode one. Mm -hmm. It's like, th like, when you're in love and things are good, there's no greater high than that. I mean, that is so reinforcing. But when you are in the dumps from a relationship, there's nothing more punishing. I mean, people come out and are like, I'm never dating again. I'm never trusting anyone again. I'm right. Like it, because and it's just so amazing how, you know, depending on your experience, it could either be the most amazing thing ever. So reinforcing or the biggest punisher ever. That does, uh, that is such a great way to put that because that's exactly what happens, right? There are uh, the source of our greatest highs and our, our lowest lows. And um, one of the things that my old advisor used to tell me is that the reason we study romantic relationships, this is kind of a hardcore scientist thing to say, uh, the reason we study romantic relationships is because they're like a magnifying glass for emotion and cognition and behavior. It just lets us see so clearly how these processes operate. Uh, and, you know, another uh, interesting thing I think about learning um, across relationships is that well, you're usually pretty good at remembering negative things, right? So if we got sick 
on a certain food or at a certain restaurant. We're really good. Oh at my God. I know what you're going to say. Can I guess? Yes. Okay. Because when I was having a breakup and I was in therapy, my psychologist told me this one thing and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but it was along the lines of everything else in life. We're able to think of the bad things that happen. So if you got a new car, suddenly you'll be like, Oh, my old car, the air conditioning sucked, or the seatbelts were so tight, or it was always made that weird noise. Like everything else, you think about the bad things. But for some reason, with relationships, we have this weird thing that we could only, th even if it was like the shittiest, most abusive relationship, our mind hones in only on those positive things. Were you going to say that or no? That is exactly, you just, yeah, that is exactly. We don't right. need a guess, Leah. We just need yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah. You're lucky. You're lucky. That... I went to therapy for years. Okay. <laughs> it is a, it is this befuddling thing. So, uh, you know, cognitive uh, researchers who study memory and, and these kinds of things, they kind of are still scratching their heads as I understand yeah. it about, about why this is the case, because it's, it is such a weird anomaly. Um, it's so it weird. Seem to, yeah. Like I, we just, I just had a friend who was here, like her boyfriend cheated on her and like, all, like literally would talk to her like she's a piece of dirt. Like, it was insane to me. And she, like, I'm never getting back with him. Never. Oh, my God. Never. The next thing, they're back together. And I'm like, holy crap, dude. Do you have dementia? And it's like, but I mean, I've done the same thing before, too. And I would be embarrassed because my sister, you know, she has a big mouth. Literally and literally. And... <laughs> I would tell her about my ex-boyfriend, how crappy he was. And then she'd be like, dude, are you an effing idiot? Like, are you like, and it's like, it's crazy how with everything else in life, you could suddenly think of like, oh my God, I'm so happy I left that old job. It sucked. But a relationship, as soon as you're out of it, you're like, or maybe until some time passes, you know, and you're on to something else and you could see things in, in hindsight much further along, but right. people go back because you just, it's, it really is fascinating yeah yeah i mean you miss the you miss the rewards that you had in that relationship even if they were intermittent and very 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 variable um but uh i think it's also the case that there's just that loneliness that hits you when you're just out of a relationship and so to re remove that aversive feeling um you know going back to something familiar even if it's messed up at least temporarily uh, removes that aversive feeling of being lonely uh, or all by yourself. Right. There's an MO right there, that motivating operation. I'm lonely. I want to reach out. That person becomes valuable I'm again. In a state of deprivation for some love. Exactly. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yep. I love it. Okay. Now the last question we have for you for tonight, this has been so fun. And by the way, I, I hope that when I come visit my sister in New York, I get to meet you because I just love your brain. Oh, that'd be awesome. Um, okay, so the last question is, and this is for all the guys out there who listen to Behavior Bitches podcast. If there's any of you out there, you should be listening. But anyways, um, do nice guys actually finish last when it comes to dating? Or is that a bunch of BS? <laughs> uh, well, it, it's a mixed bag. So um, nice guys finish last in... Uh, short-term mating context. So like college, <laughs> for example. <laughs> poor guys uh, in college. Yeah, yeah, poor guys. And you can just see them, right? You can think back to them. Uh, Those just... are the guys you want to marry though, ladies. If you're in college and you're listening. 
Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's nothing wrong with those guys in college right. <laughs> either. But um, yeah, so they, they don't do great in those in those contexts. But if once they do partner up, um, well, then they really do well. So they don't finish last because uh, their relationships tend to be happier. The relationships tend to be more stable. And this goes both ways. So not only is their partner uh, happier and, and wants to stick with the relationship, but also the nice guy gets to be happy in a relationship and uh, trust the stability of it more so than the jerky guy uh, who, if they did partner up, are more likely to divorce and have an unhappy relationship. Or cheat. Or cheat or do something else jerky. Chasing. So, uh, you seem to say that with a little bit of hate. <laughs> <laughs> I had to throw that in there. Yeah, no, nice well, guy. Because you, you said about the attractiveness, right? Like, if you are dating a really attractive mate, guess what? Other women think they're attractive too, and vice versa. Yeah, yeah, it, it, exactly. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with being an attractive person. There's nothing wrong with uh, having money, but I think the place we get tripped up is when we prioritize those and lose out on other things. Um, so it sounds like you know both of you chose. People had great traits that actually really matter. It's also nice that they're attractive and, you know, maybe they uh, are cook, ambitious. And, and they and cook. Well too. And they cook, which is, wow, that's great. great but hey, don't don't, don't get there. me wrong. I don't want, I, I want to keep it real raw and relatable on here as always. Sometimes he pisses the shit out of me. Not going to lie. I, I'm <laughs> just going to keep it real on here. Yeah, I've been here for two days. Been a little bit of, uh, you know. Take your dogs out. Why aren't you doing it? Why aren't you pulling your weight? <laughs> That's yeah. amazing. Well, it's real you know, life. One of the things I've, one of the things I love uh, about these books is when you, you know, you go talk places or uh, or at a bookstore, you meet people who have read it, and I, I met some people in their sixties and seventies who had been happily married for decades who had read the book, and I was like, well, you don't seem like you really need it. <laughs> you know, because you're already, you you're made already it. set up. And um, yeah, exactly. But I guess they were just intellectually curious. And um, one of the, the neat things was that they would talk about sometimes, you know, having a hard year with somebody or hard years, plural. And these are people who are living the happily ever after dream. And I thought, wow, that is to me, that seems like such a long time, you know, to, to struggle with something. But, you know, they just said that uh, it was the commitment and devotion and steadfastness that they had and, and the deep love they had for the person uh, that made them trust and have faith that ultimately things would, would be okay. And, uh, you know, I think when people choose partners with the right characteristics, they choose them uh, for the right reasons it leads then to that kind of mentality that is totally integral for having a a great long-term relationship. Wow. So this has just been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. Everyone, go get yourself a copy of The Science of Happily Ever After. I mean, I could keep this podcast going. We are going to add, um, we do a Behavior Bitches book club. Uh, We did our first one last night. It was a huge success. And we are going to add, um, we're going to like figure out which is going to be the best one. We're going to add one of your books to our book club. And we're so excited. 
I, I think we're, I, I think we're gonna do the science of why we're socially awkward. Only if you promise us that you'll come on for the book club and say hi. Absolutely. I, hey, I would love to uh, meet some of your uh, listeners and the folks in your in your book club. And I just think it's awesome uh, what you all are doing uh, with the uh, behavioral approach and just mm-hmm. making it so relatable and, and user friendly. Uh, I think that's a a great thing you're doing, and this was really fun. So thanks for having me on. Thank you, Ty, so much for uh, that feedback. We truly appreciate it. You have been a gem to have on. Um, we look forward to talking to you soon. Hey, sounds good. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. So guys, thanks for tuning in. You know where to find us. As always, love you. Mean it. Hey guys, it's Liat. And Casey. We just want to take a second to let you know that if you're thinking of being a millennial like us and starting your own podcast, there is a way. You can do your show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Because guess what? We don't know shit with that. But we have Alan at Pretty Easy Podcast who helped us get started. He records our shows. He posts them. He adds awesome, awesome music and cool shit when we don't even know what he's doing. He sends us teaser episodes. He does it all. We just sit here and friggin' talk. We shoot the shit and you can record from home, your office, the park, a bathroom stall at work. It doesn't matter. He provides the complete podcast studio. All you need is a microphone and you're good. Alan caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. He has been super flexible with our schedule. Whenever we need him, we go to Google Calendar. We just book him and he does all the hard work. It's like so incredibly easy. That's why it's probably called Pretty Easy Podcast. So be heard and have some fun podcasting like us. Go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. 